Welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 70s, the show where we try and find the absolute best albums of the 1970s. I'm your host, Andy, and today we have a special episode for Father's Day weekend where I'm going to talk Genesis with the biggest fan I know, the man who for 18 years told me when supper's ready, my dad. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks very much for uh, for inviting me. This is kind of a special special thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I, when we got to the 70s, I knew we wanted to do some progressive rock because that's a big part of the 70s music scene, I think. And so I knew that you were obviously a big Genesis fan. So that was a band that I thought would be fun to cover. And uh, who who better to talk to it with than somebody who listened to them in the moment? Yeah, listened to them uh, when they were, uh, you know, still together and still a band and actually got to see them a few times too, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, so today we're going over all eight of Genesis 70s studio albums. I uh, thought we'd get your perspective from a fan during that time. But I wanted to ask first... Uh, how you got into them? Because, I mean, in the States, they weren't exactly like a household name in the 70s. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and I kind of gave it some thought trying to figure out exactly how I got um, to that stage. I guess you mentioned that progressive rock was, was kind of a thing in the mm-hmm. early 70s. And I thought about some bands that I was listening to and some music that I was listening to that would kind of led me up to uh, to that particular group. And, you know, if you go back to like Inagata De Vida, you know, 68, uh-huh. which was a, I think it was almost the whole side of a, of a record. Probably. And, um, you know, that was kind of unusual. Uh, and then uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer was also a progressive band. Mm-hmm. They were kind of popular on the radio. Uh, Lucky Man was, uh, was one of their hits, one of their singles. Um, then Yes came out with Roundabout. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a cut down version that you know that they got From to play on mm-hmm. on the radio, and to me that was a pretty unique sound too. Something that uh, that I was attracted to, and then you get into like you know Jethro Tull with Thick as a Brick and Aqualung and just uh, a series of of bands that were popular. Um, and then in '74, which was my senior year in high school. Um, we had kind of switched over to FM radio because it was becoming more of a uh, more of a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, in like November of '74, they came out with uh, "Selling Anything by the Pound," and um, and the release that they, I guess, the single that they released was called "Dancing with the Moonlit Night." So mm-hmm. that was that song was my introduction to to Genesis, um, and just. A totally different sound, something that was incredibly unique to me. And even when I listen to that song today, you know, it's it's such an odd time signature. I still can't always get exactly uh-huh. right, you know, when the when the beats come in. So it's it's just it. That's what kind of got me into the into that group. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you remember? What radio station it was that uh, played it? Um, so in the Philadelphia area, which mm-hmm. is where I grew up, um, the kind of the, the hot FM station at the time was WMMR 93.3. And um, I did a little, out of, out of curiosity, I did a little bit of research on, on that, uh, that station. And I think it was like 1968 is when they kind of switched over to a um, rock or progressive rock format. Mm-hmm. So it was a few years um, before I got into the, Genesis piece of it, but I was I was kind of a fan of of that, you know, FM sound. And right. it's 
before that, it was all AM. You know, it was top 40 stuff. WFIL and WIBG were the two popular AM stations that probably every kid, every high school or elementary school kid in the area listened to. You know? uh-huh. So Nice. Well, Genesis, of course, one of the trailblazing bands of progressive rock, as we mentioned. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the genre, basically, you know, rock music that integrates elements of classical music, jazz, uh, you know, the kind of band where if you bring a flute to band practice, they're not going to kick you out. Uh, you know, they might even be happy that you did. Uh, yeah, yep. I think so. In fact, um, Peter Gabriel is a flute player. Yeah. So he's he's uh, his instruments featured in a number of the songs. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, like I said, we got eight albums to get to today. So let's dive in here to the story of Genesis. Formed at the Charterhouse School in Surrey, England, Peter Gabriel, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, joined by Anthony Phillips on guitar and Chris Stewart on drums at this point. Uh, After bouncing around in a couple of other bands, the five of them officially begin as Genesis uh, in 1967 and establish themselves as, uh, you know, a talented local band that were eventually uh, put in touch with Charterhouse alumni Jonathan King, who had had a single a couple years earlier with the song uh, Everyone's Gone to the Moon. I don't know. Do you, did you hear that one at the time? Um, <laughs> Might have been more of a UK single. Yeah, than US, it's but. it sounds familiar. I'd have to. I guess I'd have to look it up. But uh-huh. it, it does sound. You know, someone may have covered it, but yeah, that, right. I recognize that title. Well, he got them a contract with Decca Records, which at that point was the home of Rolling Stones, Moody Blues, among others. Uh, and keep in mind, I mean, they're all still teenagers at this point. So I mean, they're all like seventeen at the most at this point. Still students of Charterhouse. Uh, it's actually King who suggests the name Genesis, both because it's the beginning of their recording career and the beginning of his producing career now that he's a hotshot hit single maker. Uh, he also tried to uh, inhibit some of their more fanciful tendencies uh, as they would create the first album uh, from Genesis to Revelation in 1968, uh, which does uh, reflect maybe more of the late 60s psychedelic pop sound. Uh, you, you listened to that one after the fact too, right? Yeah, I did. It's kind of in preparation for our show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I only listened to it the one time, and it is definitely more of a, a 60s, you know, uh, sound as okay. opposed to what they ultimately uh, morph into in the 70s. Yeah, and uh, it's during this time that Stewart is replaced by drum, drummer uh, John Silver, who even then was shortly replaced by John Mayhew. So there's a little bit of drummer turnover here before they land on a, a pretty good drummer a little bit later. But uh, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he, you know, he can, he can hold his own. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but their debut uh, kind of underwhelmed, and Decca did not pick up the uh, rest of their contract after that first year. Uh, but after a couple solid years of gigging around the UK, they make an impression on John Anthony and Tony Stratton Smith of Charisma Records, who signed them in 1970. Uh, and this time, nobody attempted to rein in their more progressive tendencies, and they put that on full display on their first album we're going to listen to today, Trespass, released in October of 1970. I'll play a little bit of the opening track, Looking for Someone. And then we'll discuss that album. I guess I'm doing that Trying to find a memory in a dark room Dirty man, you're looking like a Buddha I know you well Yeah Keep on a straight line Like a dagger, it hurts me so. 
again You see the sunlight through the trees to keep you warm In peaceful shades of green Yet in the darkness of my mind Damascus wasn't far behind So this song and The Knife from here are kind of the two that stood out to me, kind of the opening and closing tracks on this. What do you think? Um, yeah, they're good. I think the album... Uh, well, I, I listened to them kind of backwards, you know. Mm-hmm. I said that Selling Anyone by the Pound was my introduction to the band. And right. so once you listen to that for a bunch of times, then you go you go to the record store and you cull through the racks and you mm-hmm. see if you can find any other albums from this band. And so I, you know, I got to hear this one um, after, the, I guess, at, way after the fact. Um, yeah, how long did it take you from getting Selling England by the Pound to going working all the way to the back catalog? You know, it depended on w- when these things showed up in the bin. <laughs> uh-huh. It was interesting that Genesis was not a huge band, you know, at the time. Um, so if there were th- two or three albums uh, in that bin, you know, you were lucky. Um, so it was, I, I want to say it was probably within a year or two of when I started listening to mm-hmm. it. Um, and it was interesting just from the perspective of you could see the elements of the music, you know, being formed in this album and in my mind kind of being honed and, and improved over right. as each album progresses. It's, so I was, I kind of looked them over. Stagnation was one of the, th- one I guess I would list as one of their top mm-hmm. songs from that, from that album. Um, in fact, I, for fun, I, ranked <laughs> all the songs from each album oh, just nice. kind of on my as a way of so what, what was your top one from this album stagnation oh yeah yeah and um there's a piece of it towards the end of the uh, song that still gets thrown into medleys you know even into the 80s yeah so i think it it suggests to me that maybe that was one of their favorites as well i like to the uh the cover art that they have for this one uh was actually made before they put the uh, the song the knife on there and so then to integrate it into it they took a, literally a knife and dragged it across and then took a photo of that so that now it's that became the ultimate uh, album cover for it yeah it is kind of unique isn't it mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i think the knife kind of ended up being my favorite from here each one of these you kind of will see has what i kind of called the the big long song on each album and that's kind of the one from this one that i think uh it's not as long as they would get to be, but uh, it's kind of it ended up kind of being the centerpiece of the album, I think. Yeah, and it's to me, it's kind of unique. It, it stands apart a little bit from the other songs on the album. It's got mm-hmm. a harder edge. Yeah, I think it's about you know, um, you can you can die for me and all this kind of <laughs> right. stuff. You know, it reminds me a little bit of um, like some U two, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Bloody Sunday or something like that. But, yeah, yeah. I ultimately end up kind of liking their sound in general. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's kind of hard to, you know, pick a favorite necessarily. Right. But Well, yeah, especially when you've had this album for like 40 <laughs> plus years at this point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But uh, yeah, I think this one, you know, especially coming off of the first one, which was more 60s pop singles that were 
this is obviously the more direction they wanted to go. And they're sort of still finding their footing a little bit, I think, too. Yeah, that's my sense, too, is that, and of course, you've got, you're going to have a different lineup mm -hmm. a little further down the road. And so, yeah, you can, like I said, you can see the, you know, sort of the finger style 12 string guitars, the change in tempos and mm -hmm. some of the, you know, the, the change in uh, intensity as the song progresses. So, yeah, lots of elements of the flute uh, parts come in. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, after the recording, Trespass, Anthony Phillips steps away from the band. And it actually makes uh, the rest of the boys doubtful the, about the future at that point. I mean, they were, he was an integral part of the band at that point, one of the key songwriters and composers. And ultimately, obviously, they did decide to carry on. But that was, uh, they would also decide that uh, John Mayhew wasn't cutting it behind the drum kit. So now they're on the search for both uh, a guitarist and a drummer. Uh, and both positions actually got filled via ads in Melody Maker. Uh, the band places an ad looking for a drummer that Phil Collins responds to. And uh, later that band would spot an ad placed by Steve Hackett looking for a uh, a band to join. So through that, now you've kind of got what sort of becomes the classic lineup for a little while. Yeah, I think so. One, um, you know, I'll be a little biased and say probably the, my favorite lineup mm -hmm. of the band. And, you know, the, the next three or four albums uh, are really solid. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they take this lineup right into their third studio album, Nursery Crime, released in November of 71. I'll play a little bit of the song Seven Stones, and then we'll discuss that album. So obviously this album kicks off with the musical box, uh, which is their big long song for this album, and which I like a lot, but is not conducive to playing a two-minute uh, clip of to start the that's, discussion. Yeah, but that's fair. But this one, I like this song too, and this I think is a, a sort of becomes a single for this one. I think uh, from what I could tell, at least it's another one people glommed yeah, onto. At least as singles go, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's, it didn't make it, it didn't make the A. No, yeah, for sure. 
Well, a musical box, what I guess it has a special meaning for me too, because the first time I saw the band mm-hmm. was when they, I don't know if I'm, we want to jump ahead a little bit, but oh, yeah, go I ahead. saw them uh, perform um, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, mm-hmm. which they did in its entirety. And then they came back out and their encore was The Musical Box. Nice. So, you know. Right. So that was, yeah. So at that point, and we'll come circle, certainly circle back to it once we get to that album, but. Yeah. Uh, that was, uh, you know, was that one of the songs you were most looking forward to? Obviously, you know, Selling England by the Pound's the one you got first, but did you, when you went back through these, was the musical box a song that stood out to you in general? Yeah, yeah, it still does. There's, mm-hmm. you know, it builds and the way they, he kind of finishes the song is just, you know, yeah. that, that's to me, classic Genesis. Uh-huh. It does certainly have a good build to it. I think yeah. that's something I look for a lot in a song. And especially when you have, these type of big centerpiece songs that they do, you know, it they do a good job each time, really, of having it build and build and build to something. Yeah, and I don't know if you if you got to see them, see him perform it on any of the like if you went onto YouTube or something. Mm-hmm. But he gets the old mask on, and you know, and and the lights are flashing as he's singing now and now, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's just really good. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good one. Uh, let's see. I think the only problem I really had with this album is that that is the first song and so then after that if every other song kind of feels like an after yeah an afterthought almost yeah almost. yeah that's true it might have made sense for them to put it at the end of the first side or maybe even second side but. yeah so, i mean there's nothing bad on here necessarily but it is kind of like okay well i already heard the best song so now i've just <laughs> now there's yeah, just exactly. there's the rest of it yep i hear you uh i do let's see the only i think yeah I mean, fountain of salmasis that's another one that i kind of liked on there mm-hmm. Which uh, does that? It's on the second side, I think. But it's the, I think it's the closer. Yeah, yeah. That I, one's a good one. Um, I also like for absent friends. It's mm-hmm. probably one of their shorter songs, and it introduces Phil Collins' vocals. Yeah. For the first time, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was one thing they liked about him too. Is not only is he a good drummer, but he was actually a good singer as well. Which uh, I think Mike and Tony both didn't didn't feel as confident about their vocals for backups and so they were like mm-hmm. okay good this guy can do both yeah and if there are occasionally uh, you can find isolated vocals of some of the songs and when you listen to them you hear the both you know both Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins singing which is mm-hmm. they just really have a nice uh sound together yeah i think their voices uh, their voices are similar i think enough there that it's almost like you know, it does help them harmonize together. I think they have a similar quality of their voices. You can pick them apart, certainly, after listening to them both. But right. there's enough where, you know, and it works out later when Phil would have to start singing all these songs Peter did. But I think he does a, he has a good vocal style of his own, but it is able to fit in with what Peter's doing already, too. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but this, there, none, none of these albums have been, like, huge sellers to this point, even in the U.K., uh, but they do start to gain a little bit of a following back on the continent, as they call it. Uh, started with uh, selling out shows and increased record sales in Italy and Belgium, some other countries. Uh, so that starts to raise their profile a little bit, get them out on the road. That's also when, sort of as you alluded to, Peter Gabriel starts to introduce more of the theatrics into the show. So the masks and costumes. And I think there's a, a show specifically at the Great, Great Western Festival in Lincolnshire where he surprises the band in full makeup and a partially shaved head and a big cloak and that's sort of like the the beginning of the costume changes and stuff that would become part of the show for a while yes absolutely and and to listen to like documentaries and have them talk about it they're like 
we played a, a great show. And the only <laughs> thing that the uh, magazines talked about was the dress he wore or the hat right. he wore or something <laughs> like that. But he, he certainly was theatrical and I think helped raise the profile of the band. Yeah. And, and he, I was, did watch one. Uh, I think there was a BBC documentary I watched called Together and Apart, I think it was, what it was called, from 2014, something like that. But yeah, one of the guys in the band was like, you know, he didn't tell us he was going to do that, which is good because we would have told him not to. <laughs> exactly. But it was also good because it turned out to be a big, you know, good publicity thing anyway. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of a blessing and a curse, I guess, for them because they're like, oh boy, here he comes. Here we <laughs> go. Yes. And then, you know, again, if we want to sort of look ahead, it, that, that whole theatrical um, thing comes into full bloom when they do the, the oh, double yeah. album, so, mm-hmm. which you'll get to. Yeah, <laughs> which we will get to. Uh, but before that, they uh, you know finish up their tours in Europe, start working on their next album, released in October of 1972, less than a year after Nursery Crimes. You have Foxtrot, the uh, fourth studio album. Play a little bit of the opening track, Watcher of the Skies, and then we'll discuss that album. So I think this this one is a strong opening track. I think strong uh, first side in general, which mm-hmm. 
kind of fixes, I think, the the thing of nursery crimes of having the big long song up front. Yeah. Because then on the second side you have uh, Supper's Ready, which is a big long song. A big long song. <laughs> Their biggest and longest, I think. I think so. And and even you know to this day, I think they still talk about that as being one of their signature pieces. You yeah. Know? Which it holds up, I think, too. I think so. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, to me, there's elements of classical music in that. When you, when you talk with, when you think about one of those artists who had, uh, he would compose some symphony and it had five or six, you know, movements to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had, they, they weren't always real close together, but they were related, you know. Right. And to me, that was, that was kind of what was going on with, uh, with Supper's Ready. Yeah, there are definitely movements like in this song. I think d- d- we don't have the LP here in front of us. You brought all your old uh, records with you, but mm-hmm. uh, whatever copy, whatever happened to the copy of Foxtrot is lost to time at this point. But. <laughs> yeah, I think it got overplayed and uh, the album <laughs> got beat up and just got lost somewhere. But d- does it indicate on the sleeve? Do you remember if it has, if it's a break it down or does it just say Supper's Ready? It, it, no, it does. It's, it's actually got um, Lover's Leap, The Guaranteed Eternal Sanctuary Man. Um, I don't even know how to... It, uh, a band of merry men. How dare I be so beautiful? Willow Farm, uh, Apocalypse in nine eight, which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite pieces of that. And then the closing act, which is they call it as, as sure as eggs as eggs. And then in parentheses it says aching man's feet. And so um, <laughs> classic Genesis titles. All these. <laughs> yeah, things. exactly. So, yeah, I mean, all those all those pieces got put together and it just worked. Yeah, I think it's a great song. Uh, and certainly the 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 best of their big long songs to this point, I think. Uh, yes, I, I'll i be a little biased and say, yeah, I think so. <laughs> but uh, I, I think what does work in this one, like I said about Nursery Crimes, I think you since you have Watcher of the Sky is a good first track. I think that's a, a good song. Mm-hmm. And the first side of this is still good enough where you're building up to Supper's Ready, but then I don't think you forget about it like you do the other side of Nursery Crimes. True, true. I like um, uh, Timetables, kind of a neat song. It's got a, I don't know how... You know, that's the theme is is interesting about, you know, when honor meant more to a man than life and mm-hmm. and then get him out by Friday, which is a fun song. We learn about uh, a character called the Winkler, <laughs> which is like I had no idea. what. Not Henry. Was. No, not Henry Winkler, but the Winkler. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, the can utility and the coastliners has that has a vibe that we'll hear again, like in. um in selling England by the pound and mm-hmm. some of their more instrumental pieces. So, and you, you, I remember you mentioning to me that you had, I don't remember if it was at the time or, or later, asking uh, uh, some English folks that you had run into what what's the Genesis album, what's the definitive Genesis album, and, the, and their answer was Foxtrot. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, and I'm, you know, it's a fuzzy kind of a memory. I, I was probably um, in a restaurant bar somewhere in Wildwood, New Jersey, you know, mm-hmm. working. Uh, at restaurants, you know, in the summer to make some money. And it just happened to, to catch up with a couple of guys and ask that question. And they're like, oh, yeah, definitely Foxtrot. I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to have to get that one and listen to it then. <laughs> and and I can understand why that it was one of their popular ones. Yeah, I think this is, you know, each one has started to come together more and more, right? So they're figuring it out and they're getting better musicians, better composers, better writers. And so, yeah, I think each one, it, it has that thing you want a band to do where each time they're getting a little bit a little bit better with each album right yeah tighter and i think the mix is even better mm-hmm. also i think if i don't know if you had a chance to listen to some of the actual albums you know the vinyl mm-hmm. uh not not this one obviously but yeah, yeah but the production 
improved too as mm -hmm. as these things went along you know listening to uh some of the earlier albums on vinyl is is a little rough you know yeah. it's almost like we could have been doing that in our basement i think yeah. <laughs> right so. yeah and sometimes it seems like they might have you know i don't know where the like from genesis to revelation was recorded but it could right. have been in, very much in somebody's basement yeah, somewhere exactly but. Uh, and then you've got, of course, the cover, uh, which uh, has the little fox head in the dress, which uh, the the artist says was an uh, artist by Paul Whitehead, who had done their last couple, Nursery Rhymes, or Nursery Crimes and Trespass. Uh, he got that character inspired by uh, Jimi Hendrix's Foxy Lady. <laughs> so he put a lady's dress in a fox head, and then Peter Gabriel then took that and became his go-to costume for yeah, the tour. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I guess I would have thought it was the other way around, yeah. but, um, that he was inspired by Peter Gabriel wearing the, the red dress and the fox hat on a, on stage, but it was kind of the other way around. Uh, yeah, it seemed like from I was looking at that, it, it, the cover came first and then that was the costume for the tour afterwards. But there's also I wasn't sure either. Little, there's like the six saintly shrouded men with, it, that's kind of in the background of that mm -hmm. album as well. So Certainly lots of, I mean, all, both this and Nursery Crimes, it has a very evocative art that while you're listening to, you can stare at and <laughs> as i'm sure you did yeah and pick up on you know mm -hmm. the little pieces of uh actually elements from the songs too right which is cool which uh you know it is something that then even the next one which we're about to get to they uh they dig into it, you're also then you figure out which which order what came in because one of the songs is then writes right there on the album inspired by the artwork from the album right? yes but, exactly uh so they go on tour again after this including their first trip to north america which you didn't catch them here you caught them later right they didn't uh the foxtrot tour you were not uh, i did for. no i wasn't when that let's see that was what they released it in 72 mm -hmm. so it would have been so, late 72 early 73 yeah. yeah they still weren't on my radar yet Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was uh, seventy three. I was a junior in high school, so who knows what <laughs> who knows what I was thinking yeah. about playing hockey. And I think I was still working at the bank, you know. So my days were pretty much uh, chuck full. I think I was right. Uh, and certainly, they hadn't got picked up on the radio probably by this point in the U.S. Uh, no, no. But like I said, we, there was elements of progressive that were on the radio, mm -hmm. and and I was uh, kind of picking up on that. I think I probably had owned fragile the yes album before i owned mm. uh this one mm -hmm. so so then uh and they do release a five song live lp genesis live in july of 73 before hitting the studio again in august to record their fifth studio album selling england by the pound released october of 73 we'll hear a little bit of the opener which we mentioned earlier dancing with the moonlit night and then we'll discuss that album all right It lies with me, cried the queen of maybe, for her merchandise he traded in his prize. Paper late, cried a voice in the crowd. Mm. Old man dies, the note he left, a sign, old father tells. Now, 
sit you down Chewing through your wimpy dreams They eat without a sound Digesting England by the bound Young man says you are what you So yeah, like you said, this is the first song of theirs you heard, and I think it is a great one to hear first. I mean, this yes. is a song that's going to make you want to dive into the rest of it. Yeah, it's just so unique, you know, the elements that they put together. Mm -hmm. The instrumentation, you know, it's like, what what instrument is that that I'm even listening to, you know? And yeah. It, yeah, there was just something totally unique about it. Um, we got it, probably bought the albums shortly after we heard the single. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it would have been in late 73 early 74 yeah the um i think they released the single in february of 74 okay. according to you know it must be true <laughs> if it's on the internet right <laughs> um so yeah we would have we might have gotten it um march or april uh, so it was kind of towards the tail end of my senior year in high school so and i can remember us um basically putting that side one on mm-hmm at night and going to sleep with it and then you know just like this is you know they those guys say foxtrot's the definitive one i think this one does what foxtrot does but even better i think because side one every song is great on here it kicks off with this one and all uh what the next song is first the fifth the next one or is that the third track on here? uh first the fifth is the third track i know yeah. what i like in your oh, wardrobe. of course <laughs> yeah so I mean, and it's it's really great song after great song after great song. And then it ends with the first Phil Collins lead vocal, uh, on the the what's the last track called? It's called "More Full Me." Right. And it, I guess I would I would say maybe it's his second one because he he sang um, for Absent Friends. I think he was oh, the, he took lead he on was that the lead vocal for yeah on Nursery Time. So well, this time he gets it called out in in explicitly in parentheses yes. vocals Phil on the back of the album. But. Yeah, which is cool. And I think I didn't know. Um, that Phil had done the vocals on uh, mm -hmm. For Absent Friends until later. Right. Which kind of goes back to our point that those guys' voices were so similar mm -hmm. that, you know, to the untrained ear, you might not tell the difference. Right. Yeah, but uh, I think this one, and then you've got the the big long song for this one, Cinema Show on on side two. Yeah, well, the Battle of Epping Forest is pretty big that's too. That's pretty big too, yeah. It's a re That's really wordy. Yeah, a uh, wordy, wordy song. It's kind of funny that just the, the the idea about it, you know, uh, gang wars in 
Britain somewhere, you know. Yeah, and then it's sort of it's sort of also like the uh, it's like the prog rock version of Big Yellow Taxi. It's like <laughs> it's a, a big long song about land development and conflicts <laughs> that go on within that. But, yeah, really. So yeah, that that one's a good one. But yeah, I think Cinema Show is kind of the showcase on side two yeah, for sure. Yeah, that. Um... I think I list Cinema Show as the number one, my favorite song on this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is at the very end, the Isle of Plenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I kind of think of that as, you know, it's extension. like a little reprise yeah. almost of uh, and some the of the other themes. Yeah. And the way that it was mixed, I guess, or the way it was put on the album, you almost can't, there's no break between the end of Cinema Show and the start of Isle of Plenty. So it's, I always thought of them as right. kind of one song. Really. Yeah, I think so. And certainly, I, I think almost to, uh, you know, I think Supper's Right from Foxtrot, great song, obviously. But I do think that, you know, Cinema Show is kind of doing that, but in a lightly, slightly more concise way, I think. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Supper's Ready in the middle, there is a little bit of a, a lull, which right. is intentional, I think, obviously. But yeah. I think Cinema Show, for being like eight minutes shorter than supper's ready to kind of hits a lot of similar notes, but maybe in a little, a little bit better way, a little way. more concise way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, uh, it really does kind of take you on a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the, the music swells and changes tempos and I don't know, it's, it is really yeah. good. And we got to see, uh, Steve Hackett and his band just a few weeks ago perform this album start to finish as yeah. well as selections from, uh, seconds out their live album so sort of a greatest hits surrounding this album yeah surrounding this time period i mm-hmm. would say you know uh, steve, steve hackett um he, you know he, he's been traveling and performing all these years and he still focuses on you know on, on this specific time period of the band so yeah clearly in his mind it's uh it's important to him it's a it's one of his favorite eras i'm sure and and i think he's he's you know paying homage to the people who like like me who really enjoyed that particular time period and so yeah i think he says that this album is his favorite genesis album too yeah. which i think I, I mean like i said before pretty much every song on here is is a great one yeah and his guitar work sounds great on all of them too i think he keeps getting better and better with each album too. i agree yeah there's i'm trying to think which one it was it might be fourth or fifth where he plays the solo and they talked mm-hmm. about it was originally, you know, let's tr- let's try it as an acoustic. I uh, know, let's not try that. Why don't you do like a King Crimson big, mm-hmm. big electric sound? And it just really worked. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's the other thing is the the sequence of this album in general. I think there's a really good just ebb and flow of of song styles and varieties in general. You know, not just in contained within Cinema Show, but the whole album has a really great structure. And I, I agree. This I think they they kind of hit this was their most polished album i think and they just really hit their stride yeah for sure yeah like we said they keep getting better and better and i think this one is like especially is a great one probably to jump in on too because now you've heard the band is at full you know like full speed ahead exactly yeah i mean they've they've played a couple of albums together i'm sure they've toured Mm -hmm. you know i didn't look back on in set list to see how many you know right shows they did and stuff but yeah, they really hit their stride here, I think. Mm-hmm. So they after this, they take on another tour of Europe and the States, and they're back in the studio to follow up their decidedly English album with an explicitly American set, <laughs> Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, in November of 74. Rock opera double LP about 
a young Puerto Rican man named Rail going on a psychedelic and supernatural journey of self-discovery. You know, just your basic <laughs> your basic plot for a prog rock album, really. Yeah, but, pretty much, right, Tommy? Or you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, well, let's start from the beginning. I'll play some of the titular lead-off track, and then we'll discuss the album. So musically, I mean, I think this, again, they continue to get to be better and better musicians here, I think. Mm-hmm. And this is, obviously, there's a lot here. Uh, so, but uh, I guess I'll have to ask you the question I always ask Aaron. Do you think that this needs to be a double album here? I, You know, I anticipated that. Because <laughs> you guys are, are have a tendency to talk about it. Could it have been consolidated? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there are certainly some fluff elements to it you mm-hmm. know, silent sorrow and empty boats and there's there's a number of instrumental pieces i think there's one of kind of these crashing sounds and all that um probably didn't necessarily help propel the story uh-huh. and i was and i was trying to think back you know peter gabriel was into uh costume changes right so i wonder how many times they played an instrumental piece when he slipped off stage and got out of whatever costume he was in and came back onto that one. So, you know, from a performance standpoint, probably made sense to have some of these Mm -hmm. uh, musical interludes, putting it on an album. Right. You know, (laughs) if if you're not sure what's going on, then it it may not make sense. And I, yeah, yeah, I suspect that you could. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it too. Uh, I think this is, you know, it's hard. It would be hard to cut it down to, I think a single LP. But as far as double double albums go, this is even on the long side of those. I think this is long. It's like ninety five minutes long. I think total. Yeah. So I mean, I think maybe there's a you could cut ten to fifteen somewhere and at least trim it down a little bit. But I but you're right. I don't know that it probably helps the live show too to have times where he can go run off and change costumes and stuff. Yeah. I don't know that they were thinking about that in the studio, but it certainly helped after the fact. Right. Right. And it is sort of like it. This comes at a funny time because it's. Uh, exactly between, like you mentioned, Tommy, I think comes out in 
68 or 69, something like that. And then five years after this, you have The Wall, another big, you know, double album, concept right. album. And this is sort of like, it almost split, it does sort of split the difference, I think, because you've, you've got The Wall for all of its grandeur is still sort of a, maybe a more grounded story, even if it obviously goes still in fanciful directions. Mm-hmm. But, and Tommy is also maybe a little bit more, I guess it's it's a little more grounded as well. So maybe this is this is sort of this is a peak of fancifulness, sort of in between the two. Yeah. But because he goes, I mean, the story of this is completely bananas. I think <laughs> it goes off the rails pretty quickly. I think. Yeah. Well, and I and I think in preparation for this, I mentioned that there's um, inside this uh, double album mm-hmm. is uh, kind of this description, I guess, of theoretically it's a description of what's right. supposed to go on during this uh, during this album. And when we went to the show, this was the first time I got to actually see them in person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you got what? Yeah. What was seeing the show like? Oh, you said they had these written on all the seats. Yeah. Too, so we went. Uh, I'm going to say it was December. December fifth, nineteen seventy. Nineteen seventy four. So about a month after the, the album's out, even. Yeah. I. I mean, I think we were the twelfth show that they did. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure we even had the album yet. Yeah, we'd heard the "Lamb Lies Down." You know, they that was getting a fair amount of airtime on FM. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we didn't know right much of the music. You know, and um, which they kind of acknowledged was a bit of a risky move to have this double album that was just released and then play it in its entirety for a, an audience who's maybe even seeing the band for the first time like you. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it was risky. And so I, I appreciate the fact that I got to see Genesis play and I love their encore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even if you don't know all the music, you could appreciate the skill, right. you know, and the talent and the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cause like we said, I mean, the musicianship still like they're at their peak here. So, I mean, they're, incredible musicians playing really great sounding songs still. yeah but um, yeah at, uh, and the show itself i mean they had things like projectors that were going on right they did um yeah i want to say 1200 or 1300 slides you know they were mm-hmm. i don't know how what a vanguard they were in, in with respect to putting on a, a show that mm-hmm. there was a lot of lights and, and projections and stuff going on um but you know it was it was a theatrical performance um so yeah, so I, I, and it was you could get a sense even from the crowd that they they were nuts for the opening song, mm-hmm. and then there's a little bit of a reprise towards the end. Right, the light dies the light, down, yeah. I mm-hmm. think, which has the same kind of melody and yeah, yeah, and you could almost feel the energy, you know, in the in the audience again, and then they finish up. I'll tell you what was interesting. I went to a there's a cover band called the musical box mm-hmm. uh, if, if we've talked about i think you've mentioned it before yeah and what they tend to do is they'll play a genesis concert mm-hmm. they'll even like say the concert we're playing is from this tour on this date oh wow yeah and uh they they were able to secure the rights to perform the lamb lies down and from what i read on the musical boxes um, website, mm-hmm. they got permission from Peter Gabriel or somebody to go to their studio, listen to some individual solo tracks, because the music is so complex. They right. needed to be able to oh, break wow. it down like that. Mm-hmm. They also got access to all the 
slides wow. that they used during the performance. So we went to see them, um, and I want to say December of 2004. Okay. I went with my... So almost exactly 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and um, so I went with my two brothers and one of my nephews. Um, and so now, 30 years later, I've listened to this album right. probably hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. But now I know every song that they're getting ready to do. And so it was, and they did a great job. I mean, the instrumentation was was amazing. Um, all the, you know, the projectors and stuff worked and, right. and like, okay, this is, and the guy's voice was, you know, comparable to Peter Gabriel's. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what struck me was, well, I'm listening to it and they get to um, the song towards the end where they have to visit the dock. Uh-huh. And I hear this little sound effect, you know, a popping sound. And <laughs> right. I'm like, holy cow, these guys not only play all the music note for note, but they even put these little sound effects in. I said, it was just unbelievable how good this was. And you and you called out too that sound effect, uh, which since you have your original record here that, I, that you let me listen to, that the, that little sound effect is not present on the current like streaming versions of it so when look you're missing out if you're not hearing uh rails member getting snapped <laughs> off by dr sniper or whatever that's right he'll whip, whip off your window. or dr diaper window. sorry he's yeah. retired sniper i believe he is <laughs> but yeah so i mean it's, it's funny to think about how uh you know we talk a lot about the format and stuff of what listening to it it's funny to think a remastered version would even have a different you know, a different mix is expected, but to even have elements that aren't there anymore is kind of funny. Yeah, I suppose if you, there may be some sensitivity, I guess, to that. Maybe, or yeah, or some, maybe one of the other guys in the band was like, there for the remix of it and like, you know, Peter really wanted that sound in there, but uh, <laughs> none of us did, so yeah. just pull it out. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take a diversion here for a second. You can cut this piece out if you need to, <laughs> but we're on our way to this concert mm-hmm. and it's at the Keswick Theater north of philadelphia for a, the original show the this was the, the musical Genesis. box oh the musical show, box show okay. yeah 30 years later mm-hmm. and uh so richard's driving uh-huh. he's got this beat up old blue van and it's we're talking like november so it's freezing uh-huh. he doesn't have heat the van doesn't, doesn't <laughs> have heat the passenger side window wouldn't go up oh <laughs> <laughs> so my brother dan is sitting in the front seat he's he only had one glove. <laughs> he's he's holding this one glove against his face so that the wind doesn't like give him frostbite. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the back seat and we're just laughing like crazy because it's a, it's absurd. Uh-huh. We get to a toll and Rich has to open his door to pay the toll because that window won't go down. <laughs> <laughs> one won't go up, one won't go down. <laughs> no heat. It was like the you know, it's a crazy experience just to get to this show. And then it turned out to be a really cool show. Nice. And what was fun about it was, you know, we knew note for note, word for word. Mm-hmm. And they did a really nice job. It's interesting. I looked up. They're still touring mm-hmm. the musical boxes. And guess what album they're doing? Selling Angle by the Band? Oh, Lamb Lies Down. Lamb Lies Down. And I was wondering if they were going to be in the area. They're mm-hmm. all they're in Europe right now and they're in Canada. So I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, shoot would have been fun to go see them do this again. But. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if they have the original slides and stuff too. That's Yes. Cool. That was, to me, that was the cool part is that they basically had the blessing of Genesis 
to perform the show. And I think it said it was uh, they they purchased it or they're they're performing it as a play, mm-hmm. not like a concert. Okay, yeah, which makes sense. So yeah, we I, we've got the record here. I have to at least read part of this dense text that he puts inside this is not the the lyrics they have on the little slip covers that the the lps sit in but then in the gatefold you've got the uh you know the dramatization of uh of the story here it just starts off keep your fingers out of my eye while i write i like to glance at the butterflies in glass that are all around the walls the people in memory are pinned to events i can't recall too well but i'm putting one down to watch him break up decompose and feed another sort of life the one in question is all fully biodegradable material and categorized as rail. <laughs> so it's like, you know, what you, you can't say you didn't know what you're getting into, I think, when you first listen to this, because yeah. he's Peter Gabriel is in full Peter Gabriel mode in Theatrical this one, I think. mode, yeah. for sure, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, from what it seemed like, uh, you know, the band had, I think, mixed feelings about the direction of the, the lyrics, I think, on the album, because they think... Uh, well, especially, you know, you don't really realize it. I didn't realize it until after the fact, too. But, uh, you know, like Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford had a decent amount of songwriting credits on the ones before this. But this is all the lyrics are Peter Gabriel on this one. Right. Yeah. And there, it, and it seems like every time they get together and talk about this, um, that issue comes up. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, uh, I'm going to sing this song. Right. So I'd like to, yeah. to do the lyrics, you know, and... Um, I think even like uh, Tony Banks complained at first about uh, Peter writing some lyrics over top of uh, Apocalypse and Nine Eight. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Oh, we intended for that to be an instrumental, right?" And he comes in and he starts singing it, and I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's better." <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's it did seem like you know, and it seems like that's a process not just for this man, for a lot of them, but the you know, the uh, musicians of the band will make some pieces and then kind of give it to the to the singer to be like okay now put in some lyrics wherever you see fit or you know make up something afterwards so mm-hmm. it's funny to see to think of them like you know recording a song being like all right cool that sounds good we'll give it to peter and then he comes back and you know some of them are like oh, just rolling their eyes <laughs> like oh, that's what he came up with yeah <laughs> but well, yeah and to have the whole concept um yeah it, it, yeah it would, i think it would have been a challenge to try and create a concept album with more than one uh, lyrics writer yeah certainly i think uh you know and that's probably true with you know we, talk, we mentioned tommy and the wall those are both very probably I'm, i know less about tommy but i mean certainly the wall is roger waters going full roger waters i mean that's not yeah. there aren't really there's musical pieces that are contributed by the other band but the lyrics are full are full on him yeah so if we wanted to get a little more contemporary and talk about a an album that's that's kind of a theme mm-hmm. uh the decemberists hazards mm-hmm. of love was you know kind of a a theme right and i know you got to see them perform that mm-hmm. did they play that start to finish yeah and they played that start to finish too okay. with, with an encore of a handful of uh you know songs from other albums but yeah but i think hazards of love was a was a single album right that was i think still a single i don't i, I only have it on cd so i guess i don't know the runtime off the top of my head but it's it's i think it is still just a single lp i'd have to say right he was he was maybe a little more concise than uh, <laughs> yeah a little more reined in yeah. maybe than this but uh and certainly uh just as maybe not just as fanciful but still a very theatrical it is it is almost genesis-esque in its uh concept i think mm-hmm. yeah with um cre- magical creatures and mm-hmm. 58 so it would have been 
maybe slightly too long. I don't know, for an LP, it might have fit on one 58 minutes. That's pushing the limits, I think, of a single disc. But Yeah, but when that came out, they were probably CDs. Right. So, but there's probably an LP version of it, I guess. Yeah, you might have been. Uh, there might be. Actually, uh, Anna got me like a four-record set, uh -huh. final set of some Decemberist music. So, Is that on there? Is it, or is it... Uh, uh, no, I don't think it is. It's like a compilation. Yeah. But yeah, so I bet I bet if you buy it now, it's it probably is on two LPs, just because it's probably tough to fit. Like if that. Yeah. I think well, fifty fifty some like fifty fifty two is probably like the limit of a a single vinyl. Yeah, which again was kind of one of the things that I liked about Genesis. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times if I took one of their albums or not theirs, but if I took a contemporary album, rock and roll, converted it to cassette that I could play it in the car. I could usually um, do like a 60-minute tape, 30 minutes on a side. Mm -hmm. um, not Genesis albums. You know? <laughs> yeah, even these, the, you know, when you when I'm listening to these ones on your, your records that you, that you gave me, I mean, the needle's going right to the middle of the record for, yeah. before the song's over. Yep. So, so I had to use 90-minute tapes, you know, right. 45 on a side, so that I could squeeze them all in, and then I would have to put two or three songs, you know, at the end of them. So. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, this this is certainly, I think, not only are they improving as musicians, but they are selling more and more each time. I think this is a pretty successful album. I think it's probably their most successful to this date. Uh, yeah. Obviously, they're making, they're doing more and more shows in the U.S., uh, so that's expanding the audience there. Uh, and the the show is obviously very elaborate. Uh with all, even some of the most costume changes ever yet, right? You mentioned that he's going off stage to change between a lot of these instrumentals. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, in that BBC documentary, uh, Phil Collins mentions watching Spinal Tap some years later and being like, oh, I was in a band like that. <laughs> <laughs> I relate a lot to this. Really? Yeah. I think the, the one that that sticks in my mind was the uh, this Colony of Slippermen, uh -huh. which was just kind of a... It's hard to describe the outfit. It was just had like slimy, like boils and like pustules and yeah. And <laughs> I it, remember he said they said in that too, like he could barely even know where to put the microphone. So right. I don't even know if you could hear him. You probably that. couldn't. And <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't have known at the time anyway because right. I didn't. I didn't know most of the songs or the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And then again, when I saw the musical box cover group do it, yeah, I didn't have to hear him sing because I already knew what words he was supposed to be saying. Right. You know, it, did they change into costumes during that too? Or? Oh yeah, okay. yeah, he did. They, they did it up. Well, they at least had 30 years to figure out where the microphone goes for that uh, <laughs> That's costume. That's right. By then, they probably had them stuck in Yeah, a little headset you know. mic or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, yeah, but like that, we mentioned that tour came so close to the album release. It was even delayed a little bit because Steve Hackett cut his hand open when he smashed a wine glass uh, during, I don't know if it was during a rehearsal or what, but he... They had to end up take end up give, getting surgery on his hand, so they had to delay. Started actually, I think the U.S. tour was going to be. They had some U.K. dates before that, but they ended up pushing those to the end of the tour. Okay, and so they started in the U.S. You know, basically right as the album's coming out. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was a challenge, right? Because mm -hmm. we didn't know the music, right? But again, it was Genesis, and yeah. you liked the sound, and we knew at least one of the songs. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, and they certainly put on a show for you, at yes. the very least. So, uh, but during that tour, that's when Peter Gabriel tells the band he's going to be leaving after the tour ends. Uh, the band does decide to carry on without him. Phil had mentioned that he 
looked over the guys and he's like, well, we can be an instrumental band, right? And they mm-hmm. would, we're not going to be an instrumental <laughs> band. So they, uh, they undertake a search for a new singer once the tour ends. Uh, they get as far as recording some instrumentals for the new album before making what's, in retrospect, probably one of the easiest decisions in rock history. Just say, okay, Phil, you're just going to be the singer now too. Right. And so he was a little hesitant. He's like, no, I like just being tucked back here behind the drum kit. <laughs> this is kind of my spot. Yeah, and he still says that, I think. <laughs> probably. enough, you know, he has a solo career and he, mm-hmm. and he was in, you know, on TV and that yeah. kind of thing. But, but uh, so he uh, ends up, you know, recording the vocals for this new album, uh, and do you remember hearing anything about this? If, you know, you had just seen the tour. Do you remember hearing that Peter Gabriel was leaving? Um, I don't remember hearing it as it was connected to uh, The Lamb Lies Down, but I I did know that when Trick of the Tail was getting ready to come out, mm-hmm. Peter wasn't the lead singer anymore. So, you know, a little bit of buzz, like, well, what, you know, right. what's going to happen? What are these guys going to sound like? Is, is the, you know, is their sound going to change? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, were you? What was your take? Were you nervous about hearing the new one without Peter Gabriel on it? I, I was, I was curious to mm-hmm. hear. I mean, um, you know, if you think about some of the songs that we listen to, and I'm going to guess if you tallied it up, there's probably more instrumental music than there is vocal music. You know, if you lump all their songs sure, together, you, yeah, and cut you know all the big long ones. If you cut out or you know you put grab a stopwatch in time, how much has vocals and how much doesn't? Yeah, then. I'm thinking you. So I've always liked them more for right. their instrumentation. I guess I'm just the way that's kind of the way my mind works. Mm-hmm. When I hear a song, the vocals are sort of the last thing that I end up listening to. I, right. I like to kind of pick apart all the instruments and mm-hmm. especially since you know I play a little bit. I'd like to, you know, know right. what the riffs and things are. So, yeah, so it was it was interesting. You know, like, okay, what what are they going to sound like? You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, I was I was looking forward to hearing that album come out. Yeah. What What about uh, you know, as, as far as your brothers and other friends who were fans, were they were they confident or that what was their take? Was yeah. was could Phil lead the band? Did they think? Yeah, I think it was the same vibe. I guess I I wasn't. Sh- I can't remember now whether we knew until the album came out that Phil was going to do the lead mm-hmm. vocals, you know, he probably commented that his voice is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, f- we went to this tour yeah. when, when they, when the trick of the tail came out, um, they played at the, this little place called the tower theater, mm-hmm. 69th street in Philadelphia. They did two shows that, that day. Let's see if I have my dates here. Well, while you're pulling them up, we'll t- we'll play a little bit of the uh, the the title or not the title track, but uh, the the lead single, I guess, from uh, from Trick of the Tail. This ended up kind of being Phil's audition to be the singer. This is uh, a little song called Squonk from mm. Trick of the Tail.
So th this one is uh, based on a creature of uh, folk tales that actually originate from Pennsylvania. So I have to ask, did you ever encounter any squonks as a child? Uh, I did not. <laughs> I, I wonder if it's a carryover from the, um, from the New Jersey devil. It could be, yeah, maybe a distant cousin or something. But <laughs> I thought that was funny that it is a Pennsylvania-based folk, folk tale. Yeah, that I had not heard of. Uh, so the, we, we went to their show on April 7th. Uh, 1976 okay so a few months about four months after their the album released yeah so this one we had mm -hmm. you know we were kind of prepared to be yeah. able to hear some of those uh songs and so for the set list that they did um they did i don't know if you want me to read the whole thing but they did squonk mm -hmm. they did entangled um robbery assault and battery they opened with dance on the volcano okay they also played what they called lamb stew. Like a medley of... A medley uh, of uh, Lamb Lies Down, Fly on a Windshield, uh, Broadway Melody, Carpet Crawlers. Mm -hmm. And then they played a couple pieces from uh, from Selling Them by the Pound. They did Dancing with the Moonlit Night, Fifth of Firth. Mm -hmm. And then they also did Supper's Ready. Nice. So that was the first time I got to hear them perform that live, which was, you know, kind of goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good set. So it's then you, that also really that's the true test for can Phil be the lead singer of the band, right? If they're going through the back catalog and exactly pull, and pulling it off. Yeah, and he's being able to, you know, and I guess in hindsight, he did some backup vocals probably on a lot of those songs. Yeah. So he, you know, he just had to change what notes he was singing. I right. suppose. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as he's the singer now, they pull in for this tour. Bill Bruford from. Uh, at that point, it played with Yes and King Crimson, so they get a someone with some prog rock bona fides uh, to tour with them. Yeah, interesting in my mind. Again, when you really like a band and you listen to their albums over and over, and you kind of know mm -hmm. note for note, you know, drum beat for drum beat, to have Bill Bruford, who's an excellent drummer, right, come in and cover basically some of those mm -hmm. back catalogs. Uh, you know, there were times when I kind of cringed a little bit on, you know, in my seat of like, ooh, okay, that's not how Phil plays. <laughs> right. So. I think that actually, I mean, I don't think you were the only one who felt that because this is the only tour he does with him. I think sort of for that reason, he maybe brought a little more of his flavor uh, than his, the band yes, wanted. Yes. Right, exactly. He he added, you know, he had his own unique style. Right. And uh, it was good. I, you know, I'm a big Yes fan as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I liked what he did but if I, I went to see a genesis concert right. not a not a yes concert and it seemed like they were kind of the same way like they were maybe a little more precious about their material than he was willing to uh to work with i think because mm -hmm. so, you know I mean, phil collins is a great drummer too and he put down those tracks and that's what they that's what they agreed the song should sound like so right. i think there was a little bit of uh contention there after during that tour yeah I, there may have been but i mean it was I thought it was uh, pretty successful. I enjoyed that album. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, at the time. So, do, did you get it and think, okay, good? They're still they still got it. Uh, yes, there was. Yeah, there were definitely elements uh, in the, in the album that that I liked. You mm -hmm. know, I thought the squonk is cool. That's you know, it has a nice yeah, it's a cool uh, song. Yeah, groove to it. Um, Dancing on a volcano, you know, is is a good up tempo song. And then I really like Los Endos. Yeah. It just, you know, it really kind of hums along. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, which also serves 
I don't know if it's an overture, if it's at the end of the album or not, but it is sort of like a medley of some of the other themes that are throughout the album too, which is a nice closer. It is. In fact, he throws in some lyrics from Supper's Ready too at the end. So yeah, yeah, he makes he pays homage to a whole bunch of the uh, the old pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps. It does help drive home, you know, for anybody who thought that the band was just Peter Gabriel, that you know the rest of the band had been contributing this whole time and can in fact still make a, a solid Genesis album without Peter singing, you know? Yeah. Although you, you raise a good point is that there are, there's probably at this stage of the game, there's going to be a divergence of fans who are like, well, I liked the band because Peter Gabriel was the lead singer. And so right. they're going to peel off and, and listen to him uh, do his, his uh, solo stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I had their album. I had his Salisbury Hill album and I had so, which to me is a really great, Mm-hmm. classic album yeah and we and we did get to see him too um around the same time no this was a little later um i don't have it written down i thought i did but yeah. around the time of so like around that time i think it was even after that um i the only thing i remember is that well we saw it at um at a venue in camden new jersey mm-hmm. um his daughter was performing with them hmm. and they did a song called upside down where they ended up strapping themselves into harnesses uh-huh. and going Flipping upside, upside down. down. <laughs> and there was this like track that, that spun around that came down from the top of the stage and they got on it and they, they walked upside down around this, uh, this track and sang the song. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was. And so, you know, I'm still a fan of, Really, all of them. Mm-hmm. So, but th- um, that may not be true for everybody who's yeah. who's a uh, you know right. But it is funny though, like you know, you mentioned Salisbury Hill, the first his first single after Genesis, which, if you think like, you know, if there was contention from Lamb Lies Down on Broadway or something, like maybe they didn't want to go in that direction. Well, then he left and went in a totally another direction anyway. I mean, like they kind of from this point on, everybody, the band. Uh, Peter and even Phil later are all moving in just a m- more and more towards pop singles at this point anyway. So it's funny that he would leave at the peak of the you know concept album theatrics and then go and make something that's not out of place for what the band would make after this anyway. Yeah, that's a great point. If he had if he'd continued to stay with them, it seems like they were all kind of moving into this <laughs> right. more commercial pop direction. I did watch a. Um, I think it might have been for like a box set that they were mm-hmm. doing. I want to say 2014 or something like that. And they had like an hour and a half interview. And um, I don't know if this, this may be true for, for any band who starts out, you know, as friends in an elementary or middle school or high school, mm-hmm. you know, where they can be tough on each other. Right. And uh, Phil mentioned, or uh, um, Peter Gabriel mentions that, he was married. He just had a daughter mm-hmm. who had some health issues. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so he's kind of splitting his time. You know, he's like, right. uh, the band is important and all, but so is my daughter, you yeah. know. And he was getting no sympathy or support from the band members because they're all, you know, 19, 20 right. year old kids who don't care about that. Yeah, exactly. Thing, you know, they, yeah, they care about the band. Their band is their entire life, right? Right, now. Yeah. exactly. So, I have a feeling that, you know, anytime yeah. you, 
you're with a group that has those kind of dynamics. I think the Beatles may have had the same kinds of issues. They they mm-hmm. met in, in school and, you know, they had squabbles. Right. So, and in fact, Phil Collins, even in this interview mentions, he's like, we'll be, we'd be working on a song. Tony Banks would get up and storm off and he'd be gone for an hour and Phil's like, what's, you know, what's uh-huh. going on? Because he wasn't, he wasn't one of the original band members. He's kind of coming in on the middle, right. which strikes me a little bit like probably how Ringo Starr dealt with this too. He's mm-hmm. like, these two guys are banging heads, but right. my job is to, uh, to play drums and maybe keep things light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think he was good at for a time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm sure once you spend that much time in close quarters with these guys that you've known since you're 15 years old, I think, yeah, probably just you know exactly what buttons to press and are pressing them constantly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, even if you don't want to, I guess you yeah. know. So. Uh, so yeah, after uh, Trick of the Tail, they waste no time. They go and tour, as you said. You got to see him uh, on that one. Uh, and then they go right back to the studio again for their eighth studio album, Wind and Wuthering, released in December of 76. Uh, we'll hear a little bit of your own special way, and then we'll discuss that album. So, yeah, as we kind of mentioned, they are kind of starting to move less in a progressive rock way and more of a pop single way. And I feel like this is where, for me, they're starting to lose a little steam as far as, I don't know, what they're, the, the type of genesis I was into. Was it, what, do you, what, it was, what was your sense at the time? I, I think I would agree with you. That's, um, it's taken a, uh, a more mellow mm-hmm. kind of a direction. Um, yeah, they don't seem to have the same kind of um, drive necessarily that, mm-hmm. you know, when they, I thought when they peaked at selling them by the pound, yeah. you know, essentially listening to these, getting myself reacquainted with some of the albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I was struck by the last three songs 
on the the album. It's um, unique slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth, and then afterglow. Mm-hmm. I don't know if when you take those three together, they're really it's a really strong combination of songs. You know, yeah. two of them are instrumentals. Mm-hmm. It's almost hard to tell when one stops and the other begins. Yeah, yeah. and then they move into afterglow. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was just like. They, that was a touch of the magic that right. you know that I was familiar with and that I really enjoyed about them. The other th- song that I liked from that album, which I don't know if it was one that everybody did, but it was One for the Vine, mm-hmm. which is kind of a long rambling, but it's an interesting story, you know, about a, a just, I don't even know how you would describe it, but right. I'll let somebody <laughs> listen to the to that song if you want. Yeah, I, the the little in, the that last section that you mentioned that's what stood out to me too. The the two instrumentals and Afterglow that was kind of the strongest part of the album for me. Yeah, where it still had a little bit uh, of that same kind of energy that they had before. And I think in general the other thing, uh, I didn't like Banks's keyboard sounds as much on this one. I feel like they're like a little more like bright synthy and not quite as like I don't know. They didn't quite integrate to the sound as well as I don't think. Yeah, and I I want to say that I think. Uh... There may be, you know, some people might not be happy with what's going on in the band at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's trying to stand out a little more over the, the, yeah, audience, the crowd. Yeah, yeah, that, that could be true. I'm sure that, well, yeah, because, uh, you know, tensions are still kind of running high. And this uh, would end up being the last studio album for Steve Hackett uh, to work on. Because after this, they uh, go back on tour uh, and where they do record their live, uh, the second live album, Seconds Out, mm-hmm. which was... Uh, as we saw, kind of a greatest hits, but live collection up to this yeah. point. Yeah, I think so. If you if you were going to try and cherry pick some of the better songs from from us that era, mm-hmm. Seconds Out did a nice job with it. Yeah, and they have uh, rather than bring uh, Bruford back, they have Chester Thompson who uh, gets behind the drum kit, which uh, Collins had actually heard on a Frank Zappa live album, and he worked with the Weather Station, so he he liked what he had heard from him, and basically just offered it to him on the spot. And he ended up being their touring drummer for basically the duration of the band after that, uh, which was which was good for him. And obviously, they found somebody they could work well together. And they even did a, a couple segments that you can hear on Seconds Out, where he and Phil both had their own drum kits, and they would do little drum duets together, which yeah, was, which was fun. It is very cool. I actually saw uh, the last time I saw Genesis was when they did their Invisible Touch tour mm-hmm. in. Uh, September of 86. And, you know, that they were mostly into the newer, right. you know, the 80s type music. But they they did end up doing a little solo towards the end, which nice. was kind of fun. Those <laughs> guys were, you know, they were, it was, yeah, it was interesting to watch. Yeah, it seemed like they were on the same page in a way that maybe Bruford wasn't uh, yeah, for the band. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're, um, Chester Thompson could play, you know, beat for beat with mm-hmm. Phil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which works out well. So I mean, they're, yeah, we kind of mentioned it. Wind and weathering. It's you're starting to, they're starting to peter out a little bit as far as the, the prog rock style goes. Uh, but yeah, I wonder uh, if that's more of a trend because if a lot of mm-hmm. like, I think the whole prog rock genre was starting to lose some legs. You know, yeah, I guess that's true with with a lot of different genres that they have. They peak and then right. people lose interest and move on to something else. And if you want to stay relevant as a band, mm-hmm. it might not be a bad idea to, to go with the with the times. Yeah. 
and you know to their credit they're adapting i suppose with the sound because they're they're still gaining popularity during this time because of the way that they're able to kind of move with the times and mm-hmm. and change it up but uh you know like i said steve hackett leaves at this time uh goes out he had already put out one solo album 1975's voyage of the acolyte but now he decides that you know maybe he's not getting as much input on the record as he would like and uh, so yeah i think he comes out right out and says, <laughs> says that's something. exactly yeah. why yeah yeah there's uh, just no, there's no room there for my, for my guitar. Right. Know? As Tony Banks is going, brrr, brrr. He's like, what do you mean? There's no, <laughs> well, yeah. In fact, uh, again, watching the documentary, I think it was, uh, Mike Rutherford who says, well, it's banned. We're kind of a democracy as long as Tony Banks agrees with us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he was, he was clearly, I guess when I think back on it, his keyboards were very much the sound of Genesis, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and certainly one of the, you know, as the lineup changes over the years, he's one of the through lines, right? So there, yeah, he's always exactly. had a little input on everything. Here. Right, yeah. Uh, so then after Steve Hackett's gone, they get together and record the last one of the decade that we're going to talk about, March of 78, the release, and then there were three. I'll play a little bit of the song Snowbound, and then we'll talk about that album. So for me, as soon as you're singing songs about snowmen and it's not on a Christmas <laughs> album, that's when I think you've started to lose the lose the plot a little bit. Yeah, that's a, it's a good observation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is just the next. This is uh, the transition really point from from being the '70s prog band to the '80s hitmakers because this is even less, I think, than Wind and Weathering. You start to there, there's even less, I think, experimentation on here. And you get their biggest single, which is uh, Follow You, Follow Me at the end of the album, mm-hmm. which peaks at number seven in the UK and 23 in the US. So that they've started to change their sound in a way that's also being more financially successful too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, uh, so by the time we get to 1978, 
um, I'm working full time now, mm-hmm. get a, a real job, which I will be in for 38 years. <laughs> right. And uh, I'm going to night school three days a week. Mm-hmm. So my time is pretty well chewed up. And to your point, you know, the whole prog rock kind of sense or genre is, is moving. Uh, and so I, this was really, uh, for me, prepping for this, uh, this podcast uh-huh. was for like rediscovering some music, you know, I'm like, okay, that I knew these guys, I knew it came out, I mm-hmm. knew it was called, and then there were three because <laughs> there were three members left. left. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'd probably heard follow you, follow me, but I'm not sure I heard much of the rest of the album. You know, I probably did a little bit, but mm-hmm. it didn't strike me as being right significant. And I, as I was listening to it, I'm like the Ballad of Big. All, all I could think of was Jim Croce, you know, <laughs> talking about Big Jim and and uh, getting his feet cut in the you know in the uh-huh. bar or something like that. And I'm like, where are these? What are right. you guys talking about? Yeah, exactly. I think so, they're kind of it, they don't. You know, it is. It, it doesn't really have the same kind of through line or anything that the uh, that the other albums do. It's not quite as consistent, certainly. Yeah, I mean, you're taking, you know, a, a quarter of the band away. Right. So there's the creativity that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, Mike Rutherford now having to pick up the slack on lead guitar and right. stuff. Which he says he wasn't. He he knew he wasn't as confident as Steve Hackett was at, at these guitar parts. So. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so it was it's kind of an interesting transition, mm-hmm. and I think it's it. It's a little bit of a hint as to w- where they're going, particularly into the '80s, where mm-hmm. they become a much more commercially successful band. I right. Think. So. Yeah, and to that point, you know, the '80s Genesis become one of the dominant radio presences, not just the band itself, but as we mentioned, Phil's solo career, Peter Gabriel's solo career, and even Mike Rutherford with his band Mike and the, Mike Mechanics, and the Mechanics gets yeah. uh, some hits of their own. So, I mean, altogether, I was counting it up. Uh, in the 80s, they, between all those guys, there's 31 top 10 hits in either the US, UK, or both. So, I mean, wow. it's funny to think about a band that has one such clearly defined era in the 70s who then change completely and become one of the most successful groups of musicians like of another decade after that. Right, yeah, almost they became the band to see in the 80s. You know? mm-hmm. So Yeah, They uh, so then they, Genesis releases Duke in 1980, Abacab in 81, self-titled album in 83, and then their biggest record, which you saw them again for, Invisible Touch in 86. Uh, and then in 91, they see they release We Can't Dance, which uh, would be the last one with Phil Collins, because in 92, he decides he's leaving, which in the news doesn't even really come out till 96, because they're not really playing together anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Banks and Rutherford still decide to uh, recruit another singer, Scottish singer by the name of Ray Wilson to go sing on the final Genesis album, 97's Calling All Stations. Did you ever hear that one? I um, I am not familiar with the album. Uh-huh. I know the Calling All Stations. Uh, there are I, I will often um, pull up the Genesis um, band in Spotify and just mm-hmm. hit shuffle. And so some of those pop up occasionally. Yeah, so that one, yeah, that pops up from time to time. Yeah, I, I think uh, not... You know, not certainly as well remembered. I don't think as even the '80s ones, uh, which yeah. are I'm some not of even big sure sellers, that, but... Like I think they started up a tour, and I'm not even sure they finished it. Yeah, and and I do remember to this point. You know, you said you mentioned kind of checking out with them at, during the '80s, aside from what would play on the radio, and uh, then they release in '99 the There's a Greatest Hits album that I know we got that got some rotation in the car because that's when I <laughs> uh, recognize some of the songs on here from that, including. We, 
we talked a lot about Land Lies Down on Broadway, but Carpet Crawlers from that. Yes. There's a 1999 new version of it that I think that ended up being my favorite version of it still because I would listen to it on the album and I kind of mentioned like I was waiting for it to kind of pop like right. pop into this more you know a bit of a more of a single version but it's a very subdued track on the album yeah right it just yeah carpet crawlers is him you know making his way through this tunnel right. or whatever but yeah I, I did like that and it's it was it struck me when we listened to him I think I even told my brother Dan I was like hey have you listened to this greatest hits they they did some overdubs on carpet crawlers it's like oh really the crawlers cover the floor Second side of people, they've more lifeblood than before. They're moving in time to a heavy wooden door where the needle's eye is winking, closing on the poor. The carpet crawlers, he dare call us. We gotta get in. And that's actually the first time that all like the original members, you know, the original, not the the classic lineup, kind of gets back together because Peter Gabriel's there with them, Phil Collins is back. That's right, and they change. I think that they may have even changed the uh, key a little bit. Possibly, it's at least the tempo is slightly higher too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins take turns doing the verses, and you know Steve Hackett's back there doing guitar. So it, it's a cool version, I think, of that song, which uh, is if you're gonna when you put out a greatest hits. It's kind of fun to revisit a song that, that hasn't maybe gotten the uh, the notice from the crowd that yeah, picked you up love, in the 80s. the love that it deserved. I yeah, think. exactly. <laughs> but, well, so on the Invisible Touch tour, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was looking through the set list. The internet's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have known any of this, but at towards the end, they do a medley in the cage mm-hmm. from Lamb Lies Down. In that quiet earth, from wind and weathering, uh huh, and then apocalypse in nine eight, the piece from Supper's Ready, classic piece (laughs) from yeah, so like, so even in the eighties, there's still a little sliver of like they give you a little taste if you were coming to show up, uh, yeah, as a seventies. If you're bringing your your son or your grandson over (laughs) to the show, you know, we're gonna give you a little piece of uh, something from the seventies. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's nice that they, you know even with their huge hits, still wanted to revisit some of that older stuff uh, occasionally. Yeah. And I think what they used to do was combine a whole bunch of the instrumental pieces. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's actually, when I was looking at the discography, there's something, there's a compilation that they put together. It's called The Long Ones. Mm. So these are... <laughs> like all the big long ones. All the big 10, 12-minute, <laughs> you know, pieces yeah. that they that uh, combine multiple you know, a medley of, of uh, instruments, instrumental pieces from different songs. Mm-hmm. And then there's another anthology called The Shorter Ones. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you know well, what you're in for then yeah. just, just by the title. Well, as, speaking of all their long and short songs, we should, we will wrap it up the way we always do. We'll, we'll give our top five songs and our rankings for these albums. 
Uh, I'm interested to hear what your top five songs would be because the, the length of some of these songs, the top five could be a full length album uh, on yeah, its own. Or yeah. a double album. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so a challenge, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I was debating between Firth of Fifth and Carpet Crawlers. For number five? For number five. Mm-hmm. And I went with uh, Carpet Crawlers. Okay. Just in cinching that we talked about just now, because yeah. especially the... the so the singleized version that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four is the musical box. Nice. You know, and I wonder. A lot of it has to do probably with actually seeing them perform it. Right. So there's, you know, there's something about some nostalgia to it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Kind of soundtrack of your life, sort of a thing. Dancing with the Moonlit Night mm-hmm. is my next one, and that's that introduced me to the band. This I struggled with. I'm going to go with Cinema Show as my number two. Okay. And then Supper's Ready. For number one. Yeah, it has to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still get goosebumps. So I had a, a similar list. So some of those are certainly in the top ten. You know, I had a tough time narrowing down to five as well. I ended up not uh, carpet crawlers since I decided I liked the '99 version better. That I wouldn't put the That's the regular version on my top five. But I think both versions could easily be in in a top five. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, musical box was another one that was just outside because it was like the it was showing how they were going with it and i thought the ones that were that came later were just edged it out a little bit yeah i i, I can I, I again i wrestled with like cinema show and mm-hmm. so yeah. so for my number 5 i have supper's ready number so 5 okay. since it does just sort of lag just enough in the middle i was like okay it's still a top 5 song but i think some other ones edged it out just since they were more 
beat for beat like yes right. that's a great song yeah uh number four for me was actually my favorite from lamb lies down on broadway which is the last song it it okay. which i like a lot i think the last the last kind of three or four songs of that i think ends really strong especially for being such a long album anyway to wrap it up on such a strong note I think that has a really cool guitar part that goes well with the keyboards. The band's working well on all cylinders at that yeah. point. box performed the show it's like wow this is an intense you know minor key there's right. and then all of a sudden they finish on this high note so yeah i can see that that would be a good, mm-hmm. good yeah choice. it ends on ends it on a strong note uh for number three i have squonk i like squonk yeah a lot. i do too very fun song uh number two for me is cinema show i think for me like just the slightly tighter version of supper's ready a little bit yeah, yeah. Supper's Ready is a sentimental favorite for me, you know, mm-hmm. just because I heard that before I heard, um, well, no, I didn't. I heard Cinema Show first, but right, anyway. Yeah, but yeah, they're all very close together. So yeah, yeah. And then for number one, also from uh, Selling England by the Pound, I Know What I Like in Your Wardrobe, number one. I think that's just a really fun song. It is. That is the perfect, like, you know, it's a great works both as a single and as just kind of a goofy fun song. It, it is. It's yeah, it's kind of Genesis at their goofy best. Mm-hmm. brother and i ended up recording that mm-hmm. just because it's such a fun song it's also 
as Genesis songs go. <laughs> One well, of the simpler. Uh... Yeah, call it an intermediate, you <laughs> right. know, uh, musician. And so I found the isolated vocals, you know, mm. and if you talk about being silly, at one point they kind of make a fart sound, you know, with their voices. And <laughs> uh -huh. like, yeah, they were just having a good time yeah. with, with that. So. One of the, one of the like music journalists in that BBC one that I watched kind of mentioned that there is, you know, there's sort of a overlap between Genesis and Monty Python as far as like classic British institutions go. And I think... That's, I think that's a good observation. I think there's some overlap there. And certainly you're a, a big Monty Python oh fan too. Oh my gosh, too. yeah. So I think those sort of make sense together. Yes. Uh, but now now I'm interested to hear your ranking for these eight albums. This is right. uh, going to be... A, we might have similar ones, but I think it, uh, towards the end of this list it might be a different. It might change a little bit. Do you want me to go backwards? Or? Yeah, go from, from eight to one. All right, so number eight, and then there were three. Mm -hmm. So we got a number there in both of them. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, um, you know, they've kind of lost, in my mind, they've they've lost a little bit of the progressive feel. You can see them starting to transition to a little more pop. You mm -hmm. know, you can almost you can almost tap your foot to them. Right. Um, number seven is Trespass. Okay. Um, again, it's not the not right, the stellar lineup. Yeah. yeah there, again, elements that you could start to to hear in them, mm -hmm. um, but they hadn't quite gelled. Um, they needed a couple of personnel changes, I think, before they started the, to really swing. Um, then Wind and Wuthering. Mm -hmm. Then Nursery Crime. Okay. Trick of the Tail. Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Foxtrot. And then Selling Him by the Pound. Nice. Yeah. You know, Foxtrot had... If you're looking at all the songs, I mean, <laughs> so Supper's Ready is good. That's just right. one whole side. But mm -hmm. even like the first side had, they were consistently good. Right. You know, if I, I wrestled with um, like Nursery Crimes because it had one good song right. and other okay songs, you know, mm -hmm. so that didn't, I mean, even though I really like made, you know, made my top five, it's it wasn't enough to sustain that album in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So for me... My number eight is also, and then there were three. Like I said, you know, they've kind of moved out of what we like about them at this point. Right. Uh, number seven, Wind and Weathering. So similar, there's still good stuff on there, but again, not moving away from what I was int most interested in. Mm -hmm. Number six for me is Trespass. Okay, so we just so we just flipped those. those a little yeah. bit. Uh, number five is Nursery Crimes. Okay. Number four, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Uh, number three is Foxtrot. So number two is Trick of the Tail. Okay. So which I thought they really didn't lose much steam for me once Peter Gabriel left, at least for that one album. I agree. I think that they, they definitely sustained. Uh, and then uh, number one, Selling Him by the Pound. I think that's the peak still. It, yeah, it really it really is. They yeah. just, they nailed everything, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I was ever going to, if I had to keep just one, then that would easily be that one, I think. Yep, I agree. I think you said when you were playing the, album version or the vinyl version it was skipping <laughs> yeah the, yeah since we have all of your old lps here that one was the one that could you could tell it got the most spins uh, yeah it got, it got a lot of play especially <laughs> side one yeah so, but it, and you know side two is if there's not a there's bad not second a bad track uh, in my mind that is as consistently good as they get mm -hmm. so yeah agreed yeah, so that wraps up our discussion of genesis uh, over on the blog i've got some uh, my write-ups of those 3180s hits just to cover that stuff too. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be listening to the 70s albums of my favorite prog rock band, Pink Floyd. So we'll move from one to the next here. Uh, 
Aaron will be back with me, and he hasn't heard any of them aside from Dark Side of the Moon, so that'll be uh, a fun a fun show, I think, to hear what he has to say. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the show, follow us on Twitter at Andy Hears It, facebook.com slash Andy Hears It, email us at Andy Hears It at gmail.com. Thank you to Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel, Mike Rutherford, Tony Banks, Steve Hackett, everyone out there who's been in that Genesis orbit. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. This was great. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, until next time, don't forget, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>